For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. And the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render a man according to his work. Well, good morning, Covenant. You know, my Sunday last week was a phenomenal day. Uh, First of all, Ben brought up just a, a great message. If you haven't heard it, go out on, online and watch it or listen to it. It just was a blessing to my heart. And then uh, after the service, as I was fellowshipping with you guys, uh, I saw uh, Kevin Reinecke and they were back from their uh, vacation in Alaska. And Kevin locks up around here at night at 10 o'clock at night every night. And so oftentimes I'm still around maybe in my office doing some work. And, and if that's the case, we inevitably end up delaying each other because uh, we talk about fishing. And so he came up to me uh, last Sunday Sunday after church, I goes, hey, Jerry, we had a great vacation. And I said, did you do any fishing? And he said, of course I did. And he told me this story about, you know, going out for halibut fishing and, and the fact that his daughter, Elena, and, you know, those of you who know Elena, she's maybe 90 pounds dripping wet, right? And they're on this boat with all these manly, burly guys from Montana who kind of said, you know, you don't need to be out here. It's six foot seas. It's too rough and all that. Well, Elena caught a 103 pound halibut. She caught a halibut bigger than her, right? Which, uh, which, yeah, I just thought was great, which means that in my book, she is now the top fisher person in Covenant because, you know, us big dudes, we have to catch something that's around 400 pounds to equal proportionally what she did, right? And that was just awesome. And, uh, and then uh, later in the afternoon, uh, Jacob and I joined Catherine and MJ over in uh, Orlando to uh, have a meal with our ministry partner uh, and a movement leader from Rio de Janeiro. Uh, those of you who might recognize him, uh, Pastor Leo Suham, uh, he is the, the main guy in Rio who leads this movement that we have, that is planting uh, Presbyterian, Reformed, just godly, biblically-based churches uh, in the Rio area. And he had told me that he's gonna be in Orlando with his family for a couple of weeks of vacation. And 
And so last Sunday, we went over, and we went over specifically because last June, or the, the last month, when uh, Jacob and uh, myself and the Deaners were in Brazil, we were with Felipe uh, and the organization, that, that church plant. Felipe used to be on staff with Leo, and that church plant that we have helped start there uh, about three years ago, we, got in, we began it uh, with a Spanish River Church and Good News Church, our sister churches, north and south of us. And they started from 12 people are now well over 200 in this service. And this was the big day where we organized and particularized and it was a great time. And we were out at, at a lunch with uh, Felipe and Leo and Leo's uh, daughter and son. And his children are close to my children. His daughter is finishing her first year of college like Jacob just finished his. And his oldest son, Nathan, is a couple of years younger than uh, MJ, my son, oldest son. And MJ and Nathan also are very similar. They're both uh, legally blind, very, very much impaired visually. And we were at lunch and uh, the World Cup was on and all during the World Cup, Leo would, was whispering in Nathan's ear the action that was on the television because of course, Nathan can't see the television to, to know it. And so his dad was giving him a running commentary and his sister would cut his food for doing a lot of the things that we recognize from our, our life. And, uh, and, and at that moment, uh, a little bit later in that lunch, he told me he was coming here to Orlando for vacation in a couple of weeks. And at that moment, it clicked. I said, huh, because uh, recently we had gotten uh, something from the Division of Blind Services for MJ, some glasses, and some of y'all might have seen him wearing it. He was wearing them this morning that, that has allowed him to really go from not, like, not being able to see words on the screen. He can sit on the back row now if he wanted to, and he could see the words on the screen. Without him, if he's on the front row, he can't even see it, right? It's just phenomenal. And uh, the way that, you know, some of these things are happening in our world today, and it's just a, such a blessing. And so when he said that, I thought, huh, uh, and I wonder if the, those glasses would help Nathan. And uh, so we went over to take Jerry's uh, glasses. We met him in a restaurant, and there is Nathan. And if you can see, he's trying these glasses on. And, uh, and for the first time, he put them on, and he's looking around, and for the first time, his, his mom is sitting over here on the far corner. You know, that's only about three feet away. And he goes, Mom, I can see your face. You know, it was awesome. And then the waiter comes up, and he goes, Hey, you're Stan! You know, because he could read his, his name. He said, I can read your name tag. And uh, he's looking across the restaurant. We were at the Dave and Buster's. You know, I introduced him to Dave and Buster's, a very American thing to do. And uh, uh, he could see the golf match you know, about 80, 90 feet across the restaurant on the television, because this thing magnifies so well, and he could see it, and he's just looking around, and then pretty soon, you started seeing tears coming out from underneath the glasses, right? Because he's seeing for the first time, he is seeing his world around him. And uh, so when he took those, uh, he, those glasses off, he just begins to sob. He just begins sobbing. And, uh, and then, of course, his dad begins sobbing, and his mom is sobbing, and his sister's like, I'm not going to cry, I'm not going to cry, you know? And, and he looks over at me and goes, these are tears of joy. He says, uh, it's not that I'm just seeing images for the first time. For the first time, I see hope. I thought, wow. We're going to get this guy, kid some glasses, <laughs> you know? And, and so Catherine and I started talking, and, um, you know, Monday she calls the company, and these things are expensive. We got them to the Division of Blind Services, and uh, 
And they had just had a pair turned in from an older lady, and she was, they were almost brand spanking new. And, uh, and I knew it was too much for me to pay for, but I knew I could hit up, you know, different people who know Leo and some pastors. And, but I called the Mercy Fund, and I said, would you guys, in case I can't raise the whole amount, could y'all come up with maybe half of it, you know? And, and Andrew Godfrey, the chairman of our, our missions team, uh, or our, our Mercy team, said, let me check with the team. And I mean, within 20 minutes, he says, hey, we're just going to buy these glasses for this young man. And so on Wednesday, he got his own pair, and they come, uh, yeah, isn't that great? And, uh, you know, it was, it was possible, guys. And, I, and I'm telling you this story for two reasons. First, just to celebrate, you know, the Mercy team could do that. Because you guys give above your tithes. You know, the tithes, you know, help run and we do ministry through, but these types of things in the community, uh, uh, this mercy fund is so important. And, and you know, we never hardly ever get to celebrate it because frankly, a lot of times that money goes to help uh, couples in our midst who maybe we are sending them to counseling. Well, we can't bring them up and say, hey, thank you for helping us get our marriage in straight. You know, there's privacy things going on here. Or, or maybe it's someone who's having a difficult time with their finances. And, and you can't, you know, bring folks up and say, thank you. That, that's hard to do just because of the nature of those. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so we don't get to ce- celebrate the sacrificial giving that you do towards things like the Mercy Fund, or the fact that we're even down there in Rio helping celebrate this church plan is because you're giving above your tithes to make these types of things possible. And so I just wanted to start the sermon by saying thank you for giving beyond the tithe so that we could do these types of things. And what an incredible day. A Friday, Leo sent me another picture. He's just been driving, you know, Nathan just wants to drive around Orlando. He's just been driving around Orlando looking at the world. It's phenomenal, it's phenomenal. You know, as that, that day, as we were in the restaurant and that last Sunday, and I saw uh, Pastor Leo hugging his son and he was sobbing, he was sobbing with joy Um, But I also recognized um, deep pain behind those sobs. Uh, And I could see it in his eyes. And so I reached over and I put my arm on on his uh, shoulder, my hand on his shoulder, and I said, hey, it's okay, brother. And he began to to apologize profusely. And after he regained his composure, he said, I'm so sorry. I I, I shouldn't have broke down. I said, hey, don't don't worry about it. You don't need to. I, I, I completely get it. I get it. And he said, it's been so hard. So 24 years, it's been so hard. It's been so overwhelming at times. I never, now to see this. Now, have you ever felt like that? Just overwhelmed with something that's going on in your life? It's just hard. You know, and, and it's like, is there any relief in sight? And, and there's, how do I get out of that? What do I do? to bring about some sense of closure or resolution or comfort or something to deal with this that I'm, that I'm facing. Have you ever been there before? Um, I'm sure many of us have. You know, Pastor Leo and I, we have that common bond in the case of our sons and, and ministry, but maybe for you, um, maybe it's the marriage that's in trouble and you wonder, is it ever? Is this ever going to get better? 
or it's that coworker or that boss and that job who denigrates you and makes you feel worthless, or perhaps it's that sinful temptation that plagues you, or it's shame over repeated failure within your spiritual walk, or it's, it may be, you know, like Ben talked about last week when he was a teenager, you know, maybe it's pain over a romantic relationship that just didn't work out the way you wanted it to work out, and there's this deep pain there and you worry and you're afraid, am I ever going to find that person, that soulmate that I yearn for so deeply and it seems to consume your thoughts? Or maybe it's thoughts of the future and anxiety over what's going to happen when I retire and I, don't, I can't work anymore, I don't have enough, and, and there's this, this weight on you that just seems to consume you. Or maybe it's because you want children or you want grandchildren or it's victory over addiction, a sin that just has you by the throat and you can't seem to shake it, and you just grow discouraged under the weight of this thing that seems to control your life and it's just always there. What do I do about it? Or perhaps it's that real sense of wondering, will I ever get relief from the the sense of loss that I feel because I lost that person that I loved so deeply. Will I ever have relief? You know, Psalm, Psalm 62 is, all, is for all of us because the psalmist clearly understands what it's like to feel overwhelmed, to, to feel this sense of weight and heaviness in his life. Um, you know, King David either penned this psalm or someone penned it in honor of him or because he commissioned it or something. Um, And from verses three and four, we understand that David is being attacked by his enemies. And we don't know what the exact situation was. Traditionally, they say this is around the time of Absalom, but we can't, we can't verify that for sure. But this psalm is very unique because in the midst of this horrible attack by his enemies, most likely political enemies who are trying to destroy his life, and he's totally helpless before them, David pins this psalm, this prayer to God, and it's unique. It's unique, first of all, because it's one of the few psalms where he doesn't ask God for anything. There's no supplications made to God here. It's also unique because of its style. Like last week when uh, Ben was preaching, and he talked about, uh, you know, psalms of lament and psalms of ascent and, you know, messianic psalms. And last week, a little bit of a wisdom psalm. This psalm is one of a few in the entire psaltery. It's called a confidence psalm. And from it, we derive a great truth, a great truth from this confidence psalm that I want us to confess together this morning to start. And let's confess it out aloud. Read, read with me. No matter what I am facing today, or what I will face in the future, God alone is worthy of my confidence and trust. This psalm is getting right to this one. He's bringing to us this basic, uh, most important truth that, okay, you're in the middle of it right now, or you will be later, no matter if it's right now or if it's in the future, whatever it is that I'm going to face, God alone is worthy of my confidence and my trust. So this morning, I want us to kind of dig into this passage. And from the text, 
Let's see why David would say this. Let's see how this truth intersects with our life and is supplied in several ways. First of all, because he is our salvation, verses one and two, because God is our salvation, he alone is worthy of our confidence. Verse one says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Verse two, he only is my rock. Or in other words, the word here is my security, my stability. You're wanting security, he says, it's God alone. He only is my rock, my security, my stability. He only is my salvation. This is Yeshua. The word Hebrew word is Yeshua, my deliverance, my liberation, because God delivers us from hazards. He liberates us from our problems. God alone is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. This is the word for that structure that has high walls and strong gates and defensible positions, right? It's, it's emphasizing the fact that God provides unassailable protection for those in need. So he alone, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And in both of these verses, David in the Hebrew starts it with a particular word to add emphasis. It's the word that we're translating into English only or alone. Five times in the first six verses, it starts with this word specifically for this purpose, to reiterate that only God can see us through, can carry us through the pain, the bewilderment, the frustration, the uncertainty, the fear of what we are facing. Only God can do this. He's the only one who can completely address whatever it is you're facing this morning or you will face one day. Only God. Only God. And so in light of this truth that David is putting out there and proclaiming as absolute truth, what is his response to this grand truth? Now, now we would expect, based upon other Psalms, that David would say, and so I exalt my Lord. I sing praises to God. I rejoice, right? That's a common, but not in this Psalm. Instead, he says, I'm waiting in silence. I'm waiting in silence. This is peculiar. Why does he, what what does this mean? What's he going at here? You see, David understands something. What he is facing at this moment in time is completely out of his hands. He cannot fix this situation. Have you ever been there? You just can't fix it? It's your children. They're gonna do what they're, you can't fix them, right? They're out of your control. It's your spouse, it's your coworker, it's whatever. It's in the hands of God. And so David is looking at this situation and he's saying, I am trusting in the sovereignty of God. The why here. Why am I trusting in God? Because of who he is, my rock, my salvation, my fortress. He's absolutely sovereign over all of this. My life is completely in his hands. And so therefore, my response is to submissively accept where I am right now. Silence. I'm not gonna rail against God. I'm not gonna accuse God. 
I'm not going to spit and sputter and turn my back on God. I'm just going to accept this and submit to this time in my life that it is in God's hands and I'm going to have confidence that He will work this out. He alone is going to take care of this because only He can take care of this. So I will wait and submit to what He is doing and to His timing. Over the last, it seems like, couple of months, I have had consistent conversations with people who are going through horrible times and have gone through horrible times. And recently, two two different folks in the midst of great distress, it was interesting how we talked through what they were going through. We, We looked at Scripture together. We prayed. We wept. But in both instances... Where we landed, I had to look at them and say, we've been dealing with this for some time now. Do you believe that God is sovereign? Yes. We have, have, we've, we've gone to counsel. We've, we've done everything that we know how to do in this situation, and, and it's still, the pain is still here. The distress is still here. The frustration is still here. There are no more words that we can say that's going to fix this situation. If there was a magic pill that would make this go away, either you or me or us or counselors and others, we'd have found it by now. This is completely in the hands of God. And so we're at the stage where we wait on God. We wait on God to make sense of it. We wait on God to heal the hurt. Because only God in His timing can heal it, can work it out, can make sense of it, can fix it, can shed light on the the purposes behind it, bring good out of only God. And so we sit in this place of silence before God. Silence being, again, that submissive acceptance that God is sovereign over this situation, and He's in control, and He is my salvation, my rock, my fortress, and He's going to resolve this in His time. That that process of accepting this and sitting before God like this and acknowledging this before God, it actually does bring its own form of peace and comfort. Not maybe ultimate comfort at that moment, but at least some comfort because it relieves the pressure from you to fix this thing, to acknowledge that, okay, I have to wait and watch God do something incredible. And when He does it, it's going to be awesome. But for now, it's not my responsibility. It's His responsibility. It brings comfort in those ways. It, it actually leads to a deeper communion with God. And, and David, he was silent in the sense of patiently waiting and being submissive to his will. But folks, that doesn't mean he didn't talk to God. 
It's kind of an oxymoron here, a paradox here. He's silent before God in the sense of that submissive acceptance and understanding that God is sovereign and he's not going to rail and, and sputter and spit and shake his fist at God. He's silent in that sense before God, but that doesn't mean he didn't talk to God. In fact, the, other, the opposite is the truth, and it's necessary for us too. We have to talk to God during these times, and that leads us to our second application. You know, not only do we acknowledge that God is worthy of our confidence because he's our salvation, secondly, our confidence in God requires regular, daily, consistent renewal. Our confidence in God will weaken, and it requires consistent reinvigoration. Look at verse five. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Notice in the first portion, it was, I will not be greatly shaken. Now he says, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my honor, my reputation, he says. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Now at first glance, right, that sounds very similar to the verses one and two, which we rest read, right? It's almost word for word, a couple of little minor differences, but other than that, it's almost word for word what he has already stated. But there's an important difference. I want you to take your pen, if you have your paper, I want you to draw a box, underline, whatever, the three little words, oh my soul. Oh my soul. See, David is doing something very, very important here. Before David was talking to us and he was stating, here's who God is now, David finds it necessary to exhort himself in prayer to stay silent, to stay submissive and accepting of what God is doing in his life. David understands something. You see, without this form of self-exhortation, of preaching to ourselves, praying into our own hearts, reminding ourselves of the truth of who God is, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will turn to false deliverers. We will seek peace through destructive means because David knew his own soul, his own heart, the wickedness that is in, bound up in the heart of humanity. Our natural inclination is to seek relief immediately because we want it now and we will seek it in any number of ways in order to get what we need. And so praying this truth continually into your life while you're in the midst of these types of situations is important so that you have the power to resist sin and the temptation to solve your problems through a bottle or a drug or a website or your careers or your children or a toy or food or any number of alternatives that we will run to to get relief and comfort from what we're going through at that moment in time. We need it so that we'll have that power to resist this natural inclination. We need to 
continually pray this truth into our heart. We need it at the emotional level. Unless we preach the truth of God and who he is to ourselves, folks, there comes a point where you'll just grow despondent. You'll, you'll emotionally break down. You lose that person who is so close to you, and you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And when you take matters into your own hands and, or you don't walk through that valley with God and, and through God's timing, the emotional trauma is devastating. And whether it's the, the passing of a loved one or the loss of a, a job or any number of life's trials and tribulations, this truth is here. And guys, this is, this is more than some self-help, you know, like, you know, let me pump myself up before I run out on the basketball court and play the game. We're going to psych ourselves up. No, this is tangible. It's real. It involves the totality of our being. Look at verse 8, because now he's unpacking. He says, trust in him at all times, O people. And don't miss this because the word trust in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, is like the word faith in the New Testament. Faith is never just some you know, ethereal, intellectual exercise. Trust is not just some emotional allegiance. It is that act that, that involves the entirety of our being. And it's, and it's associated with obedience to what we do know and what is clear to us in our life. One of the other confidence psalms, Psalm 37, brings this about. He says, trust in the Lord and do, what's that next word? Good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. And he goes on and says, don't grow angry and rage and forsake. And see, trusting, you're in this situation <laughs> and it's not clear what's going on. You don't always know what is the next right step. What is God up to? I don't understand why this is in my life. I have no clue. But you know what? I know in all these other areas of my life exactly what I am supposed to do and how I'm supposed to live and think because God has revealed it to me. So where it is clear, I'm going to trust, and that means I obey and I walk with God and where it's clear and where it's not clear, I wait, silently waiting before God. Trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Well, would you make up your cotton pick in mind? Am I supposed to be silent before God? Or am I supposed to pour my heart out before God? Which one is it? Yes. Okay. You see, both of these are representing the polar, uh, the, 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 I guess the both ends of the continuum of a healthy prayer life. You see in Psalm 123 a great example of being silent before the Lord. In Psalm 123, he says to you, I lift up my eyes, 
O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hands of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Do you see what this is? In other words, you are enthroned, you're sovereign. I'm going, I'm going to look at you. I lift up my eyes. I fixate my eyes on you like these people do to their masters until this is over with. This is silently waiting. And yet this is the same person, David, who says, pour out your heart before him. And throughout the Psalms, you see him doing exactly this. So many of the Psalms are David putting out before God the hurt, the fear, the anxiety, the stress, the disillusionment, all the things that he is feeling, the confusion. Why God, why is this going on? Why is this happening? What are you doing? All of these different emotions and sentiments that are in his life because of this trial, he puts it out before God. But there's an important caveat here. He does it like he does in verse five with a rapper. He's always doing this pouring out of his heart before God with the rapper of the truth of who God is. So even as he pours his heart out to God with all of the hurt and the anger and frustration and everything that he's feeling, he does it within the wrapper of acknowledging that you are God, my rock, the sovereign one who's enthroned in the heavens, who I sit and bow before. Ladies and gentlemen, church, this is so, so important. I can't stress it enough. You see, when we pour out our hearts before God, it's inevitable that it's going to include the why. Why God? Why this thing? And, and, if, and if you come to God with why, without the wrapper of the scriptures, sitting silently before God. Oh my. See, when, you know, 20 some odd years ago when we got that diagnosis from about Jerry, both Catherine and I were devastated, as you can imagine, and we both began to go to God and say, why? My why was unhealthy. Catherine's was healthy. Hers was healthy because as she was asking why, she was preaching to herself what she knew about God and praying that truth, and she would sing it on the piano as she would play hymns, and she was continually feeding her soul with the truth of who God was as she was asking why. I did not. And so here's what happens your why, when you do not do it like David does in a healthy way, silent before God, submissively before God, reminding yourself of who God is, your why very quickly becomes, why me? And why me? 
very quickly becomes self-righteousness and anger that further poisons your soul. And it, was, it became very clear how we were on such different trajectories because when one day I exploded with Catherine and I just went there with, why me? And I was just railing against God and my anger against God. And Catherine is sitting there looking at me and she goes, that's not what I'm experiencing. She said, in fact, what God is leading me is, why not me? What an important little word in that context, not is. You see, without it, your self-righteousness grows and your anger grows and your disillusionment grows, your resentment grows, and all of those things become the seedbeds for addictions and everything else. Because you gotta get, you gotta get relief somehow. But why not me was the result where God took Catherine because she was healthy with her why. She was silent before God. And so all through the journey, she was seeing God work. And every little time where God worked became like water to a parched soul. It became times of rejoicing. She could see the overwhelming blessings of God even in the midst of the trial because her why was, was healthy. She had understanding about what we were going through much sooner than I did. Our confidence in God, folks, it requires regular renewal. We're going to go longer this morning. Okay? Is that okay, church? I don't want to cut this off. If you didn't say amen, just go to sleep. <laughs> I'm teasing. Third application. Our sinfulness encourages self-confidence and misplaced confidence. In verse 9, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Charles Spurgeon in his Treasury of David, quoted an, an old English divine, and he said these words are worth writing down. They trust not God at all who trust not Him alone. They trust not God at all who trust not Him alone. What is David getting at in this passage? And what was Spurgeon? You see, the, the, when you're in the middle of difficult situations, everything in our flesh screams against trusting in God alone for the right outcome. And we'll deceive ourselves, as Christians even, we'll deceive ourselves. We will say, I'm going to trust in God, and we begin to scheme or diss or doubt or whatever the case may be. But folks, they who trust not God at all, they trust not God at all, who do not trust God alone. Whenever we add to God anything or any scheme or trusting in another person or our own resources or our own abilities, 
God says, you're not trusting in me. It's trust in me alone. The example David gives here is a common one. The two places that we normally go to, other people and material resources, material things, money or substances to get deliverance from what we're going through. And he says it's useless, it's a waste of time. It never works. All the schemes of man, including money, to bring about relief from that pain and to gain security, they have no weight to them. They're like the breath. And he uses our favorite word from Ecclesiastes here, hevel, hevel. They appear like they have substance, but it's an illusion. There's no substance here. Do you know why I chose this psalm, folks? Because two years ago when I started my sabbatical and I read this psalm, I referred to this a couple of months back, I wrote in my journal, the reality of my heart and my life is God is not my salvation, God is not my rock, God is not my fortress. Because that's where I was in my spiritual journey. You see, my why was unhealthy. And it became, why me? And through the years, rather than silently sitting and resting before God, I put my confidence in other things. Ministry. I'll make the pain go away, the lack of understanding going away, the disillusionment going away, the frustration going away. How will I do that? I'll throw myself into being a pastor serve the church. Now, how twisted is that? But it's no different than the person who throws himself into Harris or Rockwell or whatever the company may be. No different. And like Eve, it all happened. I asked myself, how did I get here? Where I would have to confess that God is not my stronghold, my fortress, my rock. I do not see God that way. Now listen, there's a difference between how you see God and how he really is. Because while I did not see God as my salvation, guess what? God said, Jerry, I'm your salvation. But the reason why I did not emotionally, subjectively experience that for so many years is because Like Eve, I I fell for the oldest trick in Satan's playbook. I fell for it. Folks, when you doubt God's love and goodness for you, and then you act on that doubt, hear me, when you doubt God's love and goodness for you, and you begin to act on that doubt, and you put your confidence in other things, You are in a world of hurt. I don't know how biblical that last phrase was, (laughs) but that's real life. You're in a world of hurt. And I know that from experience. I have the scars to prove it. In this psalm, it started with David telling us we can have confidence in God because he's our salvation. And at the end, in his final application, he tells us how 
this is possible. How is it possible that God's our fortress, our rock, our salvation? Why should we see him this way? Why should we trust in him alone? And it's right here, verse 11 and 12. He's our all-powerful and all-loving, and because he is all-powerful and all-loving, we can trust God and we can have absolute confidence in him alone. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to all power, all sovereign power. He is sovereignly over everything, superintending it. He's that powerful. Everything in your life and my life is under his power. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, that covenantal, faithful, all-consuming love, for you'll render to a man according to his work. In other words, God, I look at my circumstances and I wait patiently on you because you're my rock, you're my fortress, you're my salvation, and I know that I can do this because you're all-powerful, you're all-loving towards me, which means these enemies of mine who have brought all this into my life, you are going to render to them according to their works. You're going to judge them. You're going to take care of this situation better than I ever could. So I will wait and trust in you. You know, we don't normally think about these two qualities being put together, the, the all-powerful, sovereign power of God, but it's important because it means he's, he's over all of our troubles and because he is all-powerful, he is able to deliver us, and he's all-loving, which means he is disposed to intervene and to save us. In other words, God, hear this, wants to deliver you. God wants to bring you through this valley of the shadow of death. God wants to give you victory over this addiction. God wants to take those scars Ladies that are in this group, oh, God bless you. The scars of that sexual abuse, God wants to take those scars and turn that horrific time in your life into something that is redeemable and that is good for his glory and for the kingdom. And the good news is he is so powerful that he and only he can do that. And he is so loving towards you. He says, I will do this for you. You know, we don't want to put those qualities together, do we? All powerful. You know, isn't it funny? Hollywood, Dwayne Johnson, all powerful. Whenever they try to put him in a sensitive role, it just doesn't work, right? Just, you don't put these things together, all powerful and all loving. You're either one or the other. Think about what God would be like if that was the case. If God were just all-powerful, then at best, God would be aloof from us, disengaged, not caring about what's going on in our life. You know, that's at best. At worst, he would be capricious. He could be malevolent and a dictatorial God, and we would be nothing more than like insects if he's all-powerful, and that's all he was. Or if he's all-loving and not all-powerful, he's looking at what we're going through, and he's saying, Mark, I really feel for you, buddy. I mean, gosh, I hate that this, this really is tough. I wish I could do something, but you know, I just can't do it. You just got to suck it up. In other words, he's an impotent God. 
And either the aloof God or the impotent God, neither one is worthy of worship. But when you are all-powerful and all-loving at the same time, we can have confidence in him. He has the power to take care of everything that we're in, and he has the desire, the love to do it. Christian, you've already experienced this. You've experienced this in the most important way, how God has demonstrated this towards your greatest enemy, death. This enemy that comes about because of our sins, the wages of our sin is death. And what did God do? In all power, he decreed, I am going to redeem you from your own sin. And he did this before the foundations of the world. And through his own power, he set it up how it would happen. And then in his love, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and he sent him into this world and he purchased our redemption and at the appointed time, he poured his spirit into our lives and he brought us to life and just like the moth is driven to the flame, he drew us to him in all of his gracious power and he put the love of Christ in our hearts so that we scream, forgive me! And we were born again through his grace and his power. We've all experienced this already. So no matter what we are facing today, or no matter what you will face in the future, God alone is worthy of our confidence and trust. And if your confidence is failing this morning, Come see us at the close of the service. Come over to the care. Let us pray. Let's talk. Let's, let's come before the throne of God together. Lord Jesus, I don't know everything that everyone is going through here this morning, but Lord, I know that this message is for people in this room because they're either in it or they're going to go through it. God, may these dear people who I love end up with the healthy why, the healthy why not me, not the, the soul-destroying why me, with all the baggage and debris that is left in its wake. Lord, may we lean into you this morning. And for the ones who are hurting this morning and are struggling, and Lord, it is so hard, may you give them that grace they need sit silently, bring people around that will encourage, renew that spirit within them. For their good, I ask these things, Lord Jesus, for your glory. Amen.